Welcome back to the Southwest Climate Podcast, this February edition, rolling right through the winter. I'm here as always with Mike Crimmins. Welcome Mike back, Hunt. Zach. Thank you. It's, it's, yeah. it's good to be back. So I missed last month, but uh, I tuned in. You guys did a, a, a great recap of what was going on in the in El Nino. And, and more the, hopeful times. More hopeful times, which we'll get into because now actually we are progressing quite quickly through the winter like i mentioned and the winter tends in our minds at least to finish sometime around beginning of april yeah you won't let me call this halftime anymore will you we had this discussion (laughs) offline of where we are in the winter and some people want to call it halftime i want to call it we're close to the beginning of the fourth quarter if not like if not in that timeout in the fourth quarter i would actually like to add a fifth quarter to to winter this (laughs) year just to give it another there's an overtime there's no i guess that's what they do call it overtime april would be the overtime. april is ot play counting on a tie up here coming up here and then we're going to go into ot Okay, so all of this preamble is about trying to make sense of where we are within the current state of El Nino, which by most people's accounts created quite a bit of expectation at the beginning of the winter in terms of the impacts here in, in, in the Southwest and globally. And I think those have borne out more in some places than others. We'll talk about what that's looked like through the second week in, in February and then also talk about what the future may bring in the next couple of weeks and, and beyond. With that, I think um, it's probably apt to do a little bit of recap of where how, how we got to where we are right now in the last month since the last podcast. Mike, since I was away, maybe you can talk about what actually was going on in the weather in the last month. In the last month, not a lot. <laughs> Fortunately, you don't have a lot to say. Then. I don't have. It's gonna be a real short recap. Yeah, since I think Ben and I talked uh, later in January, I think we were still in the the afterglow of the very wet week in uh, the beginning of January. Very classic run of uh, parade of storms through the Southwest. Definitely El Nino driven. Had all the hallmarks of that. Put down quite a bit of rain and, and snow across the Southwest. And then after that, there was a lot every day checking the weather forecast, waiting for the next parade of storms to set up and it would get further away and further away. And we ended up having one event that very, very quick hitting precipitation event across the Southwest right around January 31st, February 1st. And that's been about it. Now we're dealing with um, over the last week or so, this enormous ridge of high pressure across the Western US and uh, even some record highs across parts of the Southwest which is not exactly what I was looking for kind of playing out this month. I'm looking at now a, a map of the November through January. So this is the last two weeks in, in February, but February has been, has been dry. So this map more or less captures the, the precipitation picture. And Arizona, for the most part, in those, is, since November, has fared... Um, Eighty-five percent of average or, or below. Not, not all that green on that map. If not, you if you uh, if you take that particular time period, yeah. And Southern California, for the most part, has been below average as well. And then, of course, there's this hinge line that, as you go further north, probably beginning at about the Utah Colorado border and extending all the way over to the sort of San Francisco and and, and north of that into the West Coast, it's been fairly fairly wet. It's been above average. This is not, again, <laughs> exactly what we expected kind of playing out here. And if you look at that that pattern on the map, you, you can play all these games now. If you want to see a, a, a better picture of the Southwest, you want to you add October right. back into the time period. You want to bring it back more <laughs> into the more recent period, November, January, and December, especially November and December too, which we've already talked about, 
there wasn't a lot actually happened during that period. November was was quite dry. In December, a couple of storms actually clipped the northern part of uh, Arizona, and southern Arizona went dry. And then New Mexico actually had uh, quite a bit of precip with one or two storms in December. So when you add all these things up, the places that have consistently missed out on the precip are southwestern Arizona, right on the edge of, of Tucson, and Phoenix as well, and southern California. So there's been this sort of epicenter that when you add up all of these storm tracks together, there's this little hole down across the deep southwest. It's a good point when we're thinking about this winter to think about which which month we actually begin then. And if we're putting it within the context of El Nino and trying to judge El Nino's impact, it's hard to leave out October. Yeah. And again, we've, talk, we've talked about this for years. October is a mess. It's a noisy month. And this year, its makeup of the way it delivered precip was a mix of subtropical, decay, a little bit of contribution to decaying tropical storms. Remember, we talked about this too. It was a, a cutoff low that did a double loop across the Southwest. Um, so that was actually one of the, the driving forces of the totals there. And then, you know, we were looking in November, December period. Again, it was early. We wouldn't have expected to see that sort of hardcore Southern branch of the jet stream really setting up across there. Instead, what we saw were some passing very cold storms dropping some snow. It was only that run of storms mm. in the beginning of January that looked like your sort of hallmark El Nino parade of storms. Regardless of you, if you include October or not, right? The expectation that we had coming into this winter was being driven, obviously, by the really warm sea surface temperatures and the El Nino conditions that were fully fully coupled within the, the tropical Pacific Ocean. Of course, we, we have had one of, if not the strongest El Ninos on record. So that there has been no misunderstanding about about that. Yeah. It's just yeah. the secondary impacts on that, the yeah. the sort of teleconnections. Yep. How how that <clears throat> that tropical heat and those the phenomenon in the in the in the tropics get um ripple through through the atmosphere. You know, we had linear expectations out of a nonlinear system. We wanted we, we expected this thing as it ramped up to do something sort of straightforward and give us the rain that we we really wanted in in a way that we wanted. And instead, it's it's given us probably what we should have expected, which has been a mess and a mix of types of events. And and it's it's not over yet either. I think. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that because mm-hmm. it is just the fourth quarter, and there's been a, there's been in the the beginning of the fourth quarter. <laughs> yes, I think we've. I'm just a pessimist on this podcast. That's for sure. I'm just down. I was so up on this, and I just feel like. I don't know. It, it, this El Nino can't make it up to me, quite honestly. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that the the expectations, the, the question is whether or not they were, if the expectations were misconstrued or if they were appropriately construed. I mean, even in the the, the paper, for example, this, uh, this article that I'm looking at right now, the headline is El Nino was supposed to bail out Parch California. Mm-hmm. What happened? I mean, obviously that's insinuating that it hasn't lived up to the expectations that that people had fairly or unfairly. Right. And it also insinuates that it hasn't. Um, and so, and it's also what is drought and how much did they need to get? And, and in a lot of respects, it's a, a pretty complex or it's a pretty simple headline for a pretty complex story, I guess. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's, let's go back to the optimistic mic come November, yep. maybe even a little bit into de- December, like what would we have expected? What well, would, not expected. What, yeah. would, what did we, what did we hope well, to see? Well, see, that's the thing is what we've gotten so far is 
not completely out of bounds. And I think even out of what we've discussed in this. In my mind, though, you know, I had in my mind constructed all this hyperbole around this event. I expected 45 days of rain already and waterfalls and flowing washes and all sorts of crazy things that probably were not in the cards. We've been looking at these past events. Had and you we've been visited the about- Pacific Northwest recently? <laughs> the Pacific Northwest should be worrying right now about their dire drought conditions. And in- instead, you know, you're looking at this this weather map or just looking at the precipitation patterns over the last couple of months. And it's a pretty darn good looking La Nina signal right there <laughs> with, the, with the wet Pacific Northwest and a dry Southwest. And again, as we talked about, it's an overlay of a lot of different um, storm systems and storm types over the last couple of months. And it's not quite as, as bad as it, as it looks. Let's sort of unpack the atmospheric strings and how those things have played out to create a situation where we've received less storms than we otherwise would have uh, desired. I, I think that this is where it, it really, you know, the rubber hits the road on this as far as expectations and, and how El Nino works and those kinds of things. And when you start to look at some of the precip plots for the 82-83 event and the 97-98 event, and again, remember, that's, that's always the dicey territory when you've only got two other events. We're talking about small numbers here. What's characteristic of those events are these bursts of precipitation events. You get runs of days that put down quite a bit of precip across Arizona, and then you get these breaks. Just even looking at those past events, there's clearly elements of subseasonal variability, meaning that there is some manifestation in the weather pattern that um, sets up a really good, strong southern branch of the jet stream and delivers a bunch of storms, and then it retreats. In this particular event, didn't see much of that. Um, if any, mm. of that kind of makeup in November and December. We did see it in that first week of January with the the really good event across, and, and it's basically retreated for the last five weeks or so. I've also read recently people talking about sort of the position of the main focal point of convection in Tropical Pacific being slightly more to the center of the yeah. Pacific as opposed to the east, yeah. eastern area. yeah. California, the, the the main sort of precipitation impacts or the higher precipitation years have tended to occur when that sort of uh, convection has been a little bit more to the east. It hasn't been hasn't been that that way this year. Well, and and that's it again. We're it's a small numbers issue, right? So right now we're comparing everything to what happened in eighty two, eighty three, ninety seven, ninety eight to now. And so if you look at that, you know, we think about what El Nino is and that shift of that cluster of thunderstorms from the West Pacific to the Central and Eastern Pacific. If you look at, um, you kind of average where all the cloudiness is for the last couple of months in the Pacific Ocean for this particular event, it's a little bit more towards the dateline than in 97, 98. But the pattern this year is, it's pretty close to as far as just looking at that cloudiness pattern to 1982, 83. You know, if we kind of think about, you know, there's El Nino events and there's two older brothers, 82, 83, and 97, 98. 2015, 16 comes along. They look alike, but they're not the same kids at mm-hmm. all. And, and right now, this one's sort of gravitating towards its oldest brother and some of its makeup of the 82, 83. And there's all these other moving parts on top of it, right? So that's only one piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, so there's that little subtlety in that shift. That could be some of it. Other moving parts in the atmosphere, you know, related to the Madden-Julian oscillation, which we talked about, and the Arctic oscillation, which are inextricably linked, um, are also constructively and destructively interfering with El Nino on the multi-week period, which I think has also been part of what's been 
shoving the typical pattern around. I think out of convenience, we often revert to a couple analogies, a couple years that analogs that, that yeah. look similar. But again, I, and this is something I think that's that's important when you're looking at these sort of flavors of El Nino is that they all take on their own their own trajectory, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. And there are other influences that, as you mentioned, can construct, amplify, or abate some of some of the impacts, particularly when we're talking about the teleconnections, the, mm-hmm. the influences that the tropical Pacific Ocean has in on the, the jet stream and the, and, the, and the storm tracks. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, you would not expect those to match up in any given year. What little cluster of thunderstorms ends up influencing the jet stream for a matter of days to weeks across the globe, you wouldn't expect that to set up in exactly the same way from year to year. So we shouldn't really expect that to happen from a couple of these strong El Nino events. Clearly, El Nino is still the biggest forcing in the global circulation pattern right now, but it is, and and on the subseasonal variability part of it, when we actually look at the pattern of precip as it stacks up through the season, is going to be subject still to weather scale variability. For whatever reason, it looks like if you look at some of the, the plots of data, and the, the MJO has not been very strong, but has been evident, and it's been sort of rearing up and um, working with El Nino and at times fighting El Nino. And I, I think that that comes into play into the weather scale variability that we've been seeing, including the crazy ridging that we're seeing across the high pressure systems and the, the very, very um, strong temperatures. And it also suggests that El Nino can still exert and still is exerting control and could through March still bring back something more typical. So I wanted to bring up the 82-83 event. Within that, 25% of the rainfall came within a week period in around February. Yeah. One week period pr- produces a couple couple inches, a little bit more of, of rain. That, as you mentioned, is still in play this year. I- you know, we're trying to coat, perhaps paint a little bit of an optimistic picture. I think the disappointment or the the lack of meeting some of the the expectations is obviously is obviously still still there. But you know, as a climatologist, we'll hold back the the judge of this for a couple months at least. Oh, uh, you can You're say that. At me right you, well, you can say that, but I told you, I'm done with this El Nino. It cannot make it up to me. I mean, and it's and that's goofy too because it's it's not it's not realistic, but it's the way like we were talking, it's the way you kind of feel about your highly ranked team not playing very well and then squeaking out a win at the in the last quarter is not, you know, you expect more out of it, right? That's a fair point. Well, we'll Maybe we should bust out some more sports analogies as we did last time. You had some good ones, yes. But we are being a little provincial when we talk about El Nino in the Southwest. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. Absolutely, The the signal has played out as it has supposed to in in other areas. Yeah. Not all the areas, but, you know... In, for example, in, in Southern Africa, they're, where they traditionally or historically get increased chances for drought conditions, they're in one of the worst droughts that they've experienced in the last 30, 40 years. Absolutely. Millions of people are, are you know, under food security issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ethiopia as, as well. Northern, Northern South America, Brazil has experienced dry, dry conditions. When you look at the global f- imprint of this, it's kind of the Western U.S. hasn't followed suit. But it's, other- a, it's actually right. And it, it's, the, it's a very, very localized perspective we're providing right. here, you know, right here. And in, in, even across Arizona, places have fared better than others. And I think that overall, and again, it, it's because of, it's this expectation issue. The, yeah, I think it kind of hinges upon that. 
a little bit more monitoring water issues, particularly for California, but also for the Colorado River are always on our, our mind here. And if you look at the snowpack conditions currently, most of the basins in, in Colorado are, are nearing right around average. Even by that account, it's not, this isn't a great a great winter, but it's not a bad one either so far. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's been dampened a little bit by really warm conditions in the last last week or so. Yeah, but, yep. But Colorado's hovering right around average, some slightly above, some slightly below. Uh, Southern Utah has um, fared a little bit better, somewhere in the vicinity of 110 to 130%. As you move north up into Wyoming, again, sort of average. Basically, it's average uh, across the West. You know, getting over my grumpiness about not having the El Nino that I want. Very, if, I have a very selfish relationship with El Nino right now because I wanted it to do something specific for me. But if you, if you do, yeah, if you look at more across the West, even from Central California going north, Pacific Northwest, over to the Intermountain West, the Rockies, yeah, it's not too shabby. We've had terrible, terrible years across the West in the last 10 years. And this one, you know, shakes out that area-wide, it's, it's actually going to probably be okay. Again, does not completely erase any long-term drought condition issues in California in particular, but you know, some, the broader Southwest is, you know, it's, it's okay. And again, it's not over yet. So what are you taking from this then, this, this El Nino? I mean, this, this has created quite a bit of a, perhaps even an identity crisis. It is for me. You know, it's like this one in 20 year event, right? And how many of those do you get in a career? So I wanted something spectacular as far as rain and precip here across the Southwest. And it kind of has been underwhelming in that respect. But again, it's not out of bounds within what we'd expect. It so reinforces to me on how hard it is to get it to rain down here in the wintertime. I mean, we just do drought and dry. It's a, clearly it's a no duh because it's a desert down here. But, you know, when we get in these situations, you know, our fallback position here is a handful of storms. And if you lose just two of six winter storms, then, you know, you're, you're in trouble. You're it's in easier trouble. to lose than it is to gain. Exactly. Even, even it's in an so El Nino. hard. Yeah. We look at like the number of days of rain in some of the El Ninos. It's only like 10 more, you know, Tucson on average from October to May gets about 20 days of rain. In the past big El Nino events, we've gotten 30. So it's been a, an extra 10. And the accumulations with the big runs of precip in the past have come in two or three bursts right. in the El Nino years. And you end up getting 25 to 50% of the total seasonal precip in these two week periods. So we've had one of them this year. And if you look at the bigger plot for Arizona, you know, uh, Tucson did really well in October. Mm -hmm. Some of the other parts of the state didn't. And the January run is one of those events. And if we get one more, we're not that far out of bounds of even the 97, 98, and 82, 83s. Maybe I'm just talking myself into making up with El Nino. I think that's kind of what I'm working myself through right now. <laughs> well, I mean, you you brought up the point about you wanted something. Um, I wanted eight bursts of precipitation. <laughs> I wanted 80 days of rain. I wanted, I had delusions of, uh, of hydroclimate grandeur here. <laughs> Well, is that a is that a is that a phrase? Delusions of hydroclimate Granger. I don't know. You get like the nerd award for that. Um, in looking at the January, February, March period, I'm looking at data for all of Arizona. 78 and 80, two neutral years, produced the most precipitation in the state. The following six were El Nino years, with 98 falling the third, and uh, 82, 83 following the the seventh out of that. So. 
Neutra- no La Nina years there. Yeah. That, that's, that's one thing. In fact, the El Nino signal in terms of precipitation in the Southwest has obviously a, a wet signal, but the variability is much greater than the La Nina signal is, uh, which creates a dry signal. The, the statistics, though small, are still much more precise for dry than they are for uh, wet for La Nina or El Nino, excuse me. So that's just by way of saying maybe we ought to be hoping for, an El, uh, for a neutral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see this in a lot of the, the plots, including the ones you just pulled up there that you made. The wettest years on record, the ones that stand out in people's minds, I was just at a meeting yesterday. Folks are talking about 1992-93, winter 92-93. Holy moly, that was an epic year for Arizona. And it actually gets ascribed to an El Nino event, and it wasn't. That was not an El Nino-driven event. I, I think it was series of atmospheric rivers at that point, which, you know, do not have any seasonal predictability. And we do, we, we, our expectations go up because we have this slowly evolving climate signal that sets up at least a tilt in the odds towards wet conditions down here. So that's, that's how you end up getting this excitement building. You don't end up having that with an atmospheric river that shows up out of nowhere um, that you didn't see even a week out ahead. And I think the the other interesting part of this year that really is worth talking about is while it may not have lived up to the expectation, we're also, climatologists aren't just pulling a rabbit out of a hat. No. There's actually physical reason yeah, for, absolutely. for thinking that there was, and we say this, enhanced probabilities. Yeah. There's, there's, that means that there is chances that it would go the other way as well. But there's, there's actually physical reasons for increased frequency of storms and increased well, and the signature is there i mean you you know you look at the the mean plots of where the jet stream has been the strength of the aleutian low the low pressure system in the north pacific where the convection has been in the in the central and east pacific they're they're all they look fantastically strong but when you look at them on a week-to-week basis they wiggle and they move around and they strengthen and they weaken, which is at the weather scale variability. So on average, and again, this is why we've said this, even though I can't get it in my mind to allow El Nino to be this way, on average at the end of the season will probably be above average, which is, I think is going to be correct. <laughs> you know, so this will, this will all shake out exactly as we <laughs> said it would, but just not in the way I think I wanted it to. So, so let's say for just sim- simplistic purposes the 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 winter ends sometime in in april we have basically 2 weeks left of, of february another 4 weeks in in march the next 2 weeks look increasingly dry God, you're making me nervous it's like watching that <laughs> that clock you know in the last quarter tick down there is like oh you know we've got we've got 8 minutes we've got so, plenty of time but so the short ter- the medium range <laughs> forecasts are all calling for dry conditions it looks right? horrible <laughs> It, I mean, <laughs> warm and dry. Um, it does not look all that promising. It's still very warm. The atmosphere is very dry at the bottom. It's going to moisture streaming at upper level. So it's it's sort of a, it's a very strange what you'd expect to see late, late, late in the season as we're so much warmer. So I I'm pretty much done with February. February is over. I've, and it's, it's fun, you know, it's yeah, and it's a short month too. It's like almost that not fair <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. And is this a leap year? So we get an extra. So El Nino oh. gets an extra day. It's like. <laughs> It may I'm, need that. Yeah, is that the overtime? May, I think that's the overtime. Uh, no, it gets an extra. Yeah, that's almost like some strange, you know, <laughs> hidden rule or something like that, that it gets a little extra play or something like out of it. But yeah, that was the frustrating thing about last month is if the rain event that happened on February 1st would have happened the day before, it would have went into the January total. <laughs> and then actually February would have been zero for Tucson. Oh. 
Yeah. Darn. And so, but it's, I was pulling up the data and zero in February in the last 60 years is, has happened six times. This is when statistics are meaningless. <laughs> it is. And exactly. You know, it's like, you know, I've heard people like, oh, this is going to be the driest February yeah. record. It's it would have been even great close. for a headline. Yeah. yeah. It's not, even if it was zero, it yeah. would have tied for the driest, yeah. which was zero. But <laughs> the fact that in Tucson, we got uh, 0.18 inches and it was one day right at February 1st, it is like the, 25th driest mm. so it's it's actually in the it's in the bottom half but almost not quite the bottom third so it's not it's not even at that it just tells you too that february can be a it can be a rough month for for tucson and southern arizona and in normal situation as well but march is looking a little better yeah at, <laughs> at least the, i'm leading i'm leading oh, that question gosh i know it well okay so i'm looking at the the forecast models and so march at this point is two weeks out yeah. So it's at the extreme, you know, it's it's the fantasy league of weather forecast hours right there. We're way out into to um, dream space, right. um, basically there. And then you move into using the like, climate forecast system. And that's where it's, you know, playing into the National Multimodel Ensemble, right. you know, the monthly forecast. That was actually initialized way back at the beginning, like a week or two ago. The CFS is actually running every day as a weather forecast, but, you know, going out for weeks. They have been still suggesting a, a return of a, a stronger southern branch jet stream, a stronger Lucian low, a more southward displaced storm track. And so that sort of similar pattern that we saw in the beginning of January, that bursty kind of like parade of storms kind of pattern. Right. But the interplay has been, I've been watching the weather models, which it's starting to come into their radar zone. Right. And they're not as excited about what, the climate forecast system has been suggesting and they've they've pushed it off a week what, I, what makes me nervous about this is that, that that's what's happened for the last six weeks right that seems it's like a very been, similar story it's been yeah. out of reach so i don't know what's happening and i don't know what what they're struggling with the the hope is and maybe if we just go back to sort of you know pattern analysis is that march is still playtime it's just that um I think you're fair in calling it last quarter. April could be overtime play. Um, it has rained, and I was looking at the the Phoenix plot um, in 1998. There was a run in the end of March, which ended up creating about a quarter of the total precipitation for that season, and then another event in mid March, very small event. It does seem to tail off with mm-hmm. these past. And you just think about Arizona weather; we can have usually one or maybe two um, storm systems still roll through in April, but it is late, late, late. And as of late in the last decade or so, it's almost unheard of. So March is sort of, March is going to be the wild card. It's, it's March is, March is the, it's the final. Yeah. It's the final. Uh, yeah. I want to give it more time, but we just don't have it. Seasonally, we don't have it. And then even looking beyond that, the forecast models for ENSO. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna talk about. <sighs> you won't potential. even let this one die. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, the, you know they're ongoing. They're, it's continuous continuous forecasting, right? <laughs> and so there is some. Do indica- you realize that we've been do- talking about El Nino for two years well, now? When do we not talk about El Nino? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's true. That's actually true. But yeah. I, but this is important because there is some indication, uh, historically speaking, of. Uh, that we could potentially move from an El Nino to a La Nina state. And the, 
This is actually, I think, pretty relevant in the context of the sort of just average El Nino that we've had, because one of the things that we needed this El Nino to do is to really compensate for the three, four years of dry conditions, particularly in, in California. And with a potential La Nina on the horizon. And as I mentioned, the forecast models are, are, are hedging slightly toward that. And there's reason we can talk about why, why that's the case. But La Nina actually, and I mentioned this before, La Nina actually has a fairly robust signal than, I don't know if robust is the right word. It's, it's a more... Um, Robusto, yes. <laughs> now I'm thinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Arabic <laughs> signal. The statistics are much more clustered toward the dry side yeah, than the, the wet yeah. side. I, yeah, I agree. And the reason that things go sort of from an El Nino to a La Nina has to do with the, the convection bursts that send not only, not only help re reduce the winds and help reinforce the warming in the east, but then they also send sort of a, an ocean wave signal westward that then bounces off yep. the, uh, the, the west basin and migrates east underneath the surface, yep. which then kills. Yeah. bowl of jello. Yeah, yeah, which exactly. then kills the the works it in the other way. Absolutely. So that's the physical mechanism for which you go from an El Nino to the to the opposite signal. Yeah, and and also that the depletion of the excess warm water in the West Pacific too is you know that's why it's hard to have back to back El Ninos, which was unusual about this one, and that depletion of uh, you know it's cooler than average water there, and it's. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not able to continue to feed that system for very long. I don't know where this leaves us. Well, I think, it, I think to, your, <laughs> to your point, though, it gives us a little bit of, and it, you know, to my earlier point as well, is of it's, it's so much easier for us to do a bummer dry winter here. And again, I, I only say that from, I just have unreasonable expectations for Arizona climate. I think that's what a lot of us have here in the Southwest is we just, we want it to be wetter than it really is, and we expect it to be wetter, and it's it's just that's not what the system is built for. And this idea of La Nina, as you said, you know, it's a really good forecasting tool for seeing fewer of those wet days and right. fewer um, and just less overall precipitation. So it gives you a little bit more. I'm I'm still not I'm not convinced that we're headed for an epic La Nina event. Right. And strength does matter when we're talking about this. So. I, this is the eternal optimist in me of, you know, saying that that dry winter next year is not a slam dunk at this point. And so you just skipped right over the monsoon. You didn't even want to talk about the monsoon. Oh, I love the I, monsoon. I'm almost ready to just be done with the winter and we could just start talking about the <laughs> now, monsoon. Now, then we have to talk about the really dry four summer and the fire season. We do. We do. But hey, we're going to have overtime playing to April. If we get yeah. we get through April and it's still raining. And by God, we had April temperatures last week. So we do, I know we got to warm up for it. <laughs> It, that's it was the weirdest thing because I I could not figure out what time of the year it was yeah, based on the temperatures last. And now last there's week. all these reports of like rattlesnake sightings. They're all out. They, yep, there's all, a, they've, they've all woken up. It's uh -huh. like big, April, but it's a big not push really on. April. Yep. So yeah. So I mean that. I mean just even think about the weirdness of the sequence of the temps and weather. You know what? What if we do? I'm still thinking it's going to happen. We go into a cool, wet March. That there's a lot of really weird things. Yeah, well, can I'm, gonna, I'm gonna test your, you, you, you know, I'm gonna see how you're feeling at the end of March. If in fact we did get some some rain, I mean, right now, if I took took your pulse, it's, I don't know, you look like you need some coffee or something. I do. I, I just, <laughs> yeah. I, believe me, it's it's weighing on me, losing sleep over this El Nino event. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. That this was thanks, this Zach. Was great. So we'll come back in uh, a month or so. Uh, and, and everything will be well with the world, right, Zach? Right, Zach? Please, Zach? Zach? Okay, thanks for everybody for tuning in. 
Game time. Game time. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of Clemus, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with Clemus, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, Research Outreach and Assessment Specialist with Clemus. Should I start it off by saying we're, we're I'm sitting here with an ornery Mike Grimmins. Oh, so <laughs> crabby. Mike's whose, whose face is on record in the papers as saying there's going to be more rain. Yeah, well, it'll, it's rained somewhere, I'm sure. Probably just not at the places that I needed it to. Well, I, I won't say that. <laughs> well, you already did. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, Ben can edit it out. <laughs>